welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, Director of Resources and Technology for the Center, and on our podcast, we try to bring you a variety of perspectives on mass violence. We'd like to hear from survivors, victim service professionals, journalists, scientists, and policymakers. And we're fortunate to be joined today by Georgia State Senator, Dr. Michelle Au. Senator Au is a second-generation Chinese-American, an anesthesiologist, and now a politician, having been elected in 2020 to represent the northeastern suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the MVP, Senator Au. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. Me too. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you what motivated you to run for office. I, I work at a medical university here in South Carolina, and I know a fair number of anesthesiologists. And typically, they're not sitting around wondering, what should I do with my spare time? So I'm, I'm curious, what drove you to politics? Thank you for asking that question, because that actually is one of the most common questions I get asked, especially at work, because, <laughs> uh, you know, most, most medical professionals feel pretty fulfilled by their jobs, and they feel like, you know, when we go to work, we're doing uh, fulfilling service every day. So it, it doesn't occur to people that getting involved in politics is necessarily the best and least frustrating mm -hmm. use of our time. So, you know, I became a doctor like many people, like many other people, because I wanted to help our communities, and I wanted to work on fixing difficult problems. But I think one thing you probably realize fairly early on in one's medical career is that lots of the things that make our patients sick in the first place are really far outside our ability to address by the time uh, they're, they're in front of us, right? By the mm -hmm. time we get to the bedside. So, you know, in that sense, by the time our patients get to the hospital, if, if they can even get to us at all, it's really too late to fix a lot of those problems. And I found that very frustrating to, to see day after day. Yeah, so that's sort of a social determinants of health kind of a thing? That's precisely right. And, you know, we're going to get into uh, how this comes in because what I decided to do about it on observing this, and this was about a decade out from finishing my anesthesia residency, is I decided to go back to school and get a master's degree in public health. And that's sort of where this sort of language comes from about uh, the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, through public health, I figured this was a way to address sort of those upstream issues that we're talking about that make not just uh, individual patients, but whole communities and whole populations healthier. Excellent. That reminds me of a, of a great conversation we had on this podcast last year with uh, Dr. Sandra Galea, who's a, a physician and a, a public health professional. And he talked very much about a lot of those big picture issues and what it meant for society to address, it, I guess I, I should say, what it meant for societal health to address the conditions under which people live. It was fascinating. And it sounds like you had some similar kinds of things motivating you to to branch out your career beyond medicine and into politics. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think a lot of people, when they think about um, public health and how this impacts our communities, they think sort of concretely about how medical care is doled out. So we think about things like access to health care. We think about health insurance. We think about access and pricing of drugs or insurance coverage of therapies, that kind of thing. But really social determinants of health are much more broad and they include basically everything that politics and government is uh, in charge of helping to, to work to make our communities healthier and safer, right? Including like quality education, you know, economic opportunity, public safety, which I'm sure we'll talk about, right. and racial equity. All these things play into the health of the community. So um, it's a bigger bite than, yeah. than bedside medicine. 
So when you were planning your run for office, are those the kinds of issues that you, you sort of had front and center in your platform? Is that what you were hoping and expecting to be addressing for your constituents when you ran for office? Yeah, uh, that's pretty much right. I think it's difficult to run for office as a physician and not make healthcare and public <laughs> health the focus of your campaign because otherwise it's pretty conspicuously uh, you know, missing, right? So I, I think the goal of anyone running for office, though, is to try to add value to the legislature, mm -hmm. right, regardless of what that value might be and what skills you bring. So I hope that with my background, particularly as a physician with a public health degree, I could add value along that dimension, medicine, public health, and scientific literacy in particular, because what I had noticed in not just the state of Georgia, but nationally, is that there sometimes is uh, a deficiency in scientific literacy when we're talking about issues related to healthcare policy, science policy, that uh, that could could be amped up by having more people with science backgrounds serving. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we could take the conversation in a very different direction at this point, uh, given the current pandemic conditions and talking about scientific literacy. But then we'd probably be straying a little bit outside the scope of, of what the MVP is all about. I would love to actually pick your brain about that at some point. But one of the reasons we asked you to talk with us uh, on the MVP is that earlier this year, the Atlanta area saw a series of shootings targeting spas and spa employees. And the police have arrested the shooter. And uh, one prosecutor has actually filed charges identifying his actions as hate-motivated. And um, I believe that this significantly impacted your Senate uh, district as well. And of course, his, the, the shooter's case is pending. Can you share with us how you learned about these shootings? Yeah, so um, before I take that question, I just want to first give you a sense of the uh, milieu in which these crimes took place, right? Because as we know, with this horrific crime that took place on uh, March 16th, there were eight victims of that crime. And of them, six of them were Asian women. So that's, that's sort of the framework we're, we're working in while we're having this conversation. When you say that this is particularly significant to my Senate district, I uh, serve Senate District 48, which is, uh, encompasses a pretty wide and very diverse swath of North Fulton and Gwinnett counties, which is the sort of Metro Atlanta suburbs. And the unusual thing about my district is it actually has the highest uh, percentage of Asian American uh, residents in the whole state of Georgia. I believe wow. in the last census, it was, um, I wanna say about 25% AAPI, mm -hmm. which is which is extremely high. And I, I just say this as um, someone who grew up in Manhattan in New mm -hmm. York City, which we obviously think of as an incredibly diverse area. I believe Manhattan is really only about 10% or so AAPI. So you, mm -hmm. you, you see how saturated this area is and, and this is, these are the people that I represent. Gotcha. So the milieu is for more than a year, leading up to this crime, we've been hearing about escalating incidents of hate and violence directed against the Asian American community in this country. Mm -hmm. So while discrimination and racism towards Asian Americans is really nothing new in this country, it's tended to be invisible in a way that leads people to, to overlook it. Mm -hmm. And this spike in AAPI hate that we'd seen recently, particularly in um, 2020 and 2021, was catalyzed more recently by the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it always comes back to COVID, it feels like. Mm -hmm. And it, it was also fed by careless and really xenophobic rhetoric from some of our political leaders, especially early in 2020, right? So this led or catalyzed or fed an escalation of violence that really only broke through to uh, widespread visibility really after a full year 
of AAPI leaders really trying to call attention to this issue, right? So it was with this background of a year of rising violent incidents that I actually went to the well of the Georgia State Senate to speak on this issue. I spoke on this issue at the well on March 15th. And the reason I did this is because I didn't want state leaders in Georgia to feel like we were immune to this problem. Because we'd seen increasingly on social media and in the press, these incidents of AAPI hate we'd been hearing about were from areas like um, New York, mm -hmm. the Bay Area, mm -hmm. Los Angeles, right? We remember this um, sort of earlier in the year. And these are places with larger Asian populations, right? But that doesn't mean that anti-API discrimination and violence hadn't been happening or wouldn't continue to happen here in Georgia as well, right? So I really wanted to make people aware, our leaders aware, that this is a problem for everyone that we needed to address. So, so that was the morning of March 15th. The evening of March 16th was uh, when I heard about the shootings in Cherokee County and here in Atlanta. Uh, so I was driving home and my phone started kind of lighting up and I pulled over at a stoplight and kind of caught myself up on what had happened. And what I felt at that point, it's really just the day after we'd been talking about this, was the sense of shock and horror, of course, hearing about this terrible crime, but really not at all a sense of surprise because this was something that I, I felt like and I was trying to communicate that we could have seen coming. Yeah. We're also aware that obviously we have a problem with gun violence in this country, and that's a key part of this crime is, is, is gun violence and easy access to guns, particularly in the American South. We're aware that we have a problem with violence against women in this country. Mm -hmm. That's nothing that's new. And as I'd spoken about the day before, we have a phenomenon of Asian Americans being targeted in this country. So, you know, yes, shock and horror, but not surprise. Yeah, I, I, I that was a, a wonderful summary of, of the context for this. I, I think probably most folks at some point in their social media consumption couldn't help but see um, a, a camera phone video, a YouTube of, of some 2020, 2021 incident of anti-AAPI hate um, where a random person in the community was uh, accosted or even brutalized um, on camera for, for no apparent reason. And it's, it's just remarkable to me that, I mean, in what must be a very kind of disturbing coincidence, just the day before these shootings happened, you actually spoke about that in, in the Senate. It kind of makes you look prescient, but it, it also kind of reflects your growing sense of, of frustration with the fact that it, it had been invisible, at least in some parts of the country, uh, up until this point. I think that's right. And people do point to it because of the timing of it, that it did feel prescient, that we spoke about it just the day before. But the point wasn't that crimes like this could happen in the future. The point of speaking out was that these types of crimes have been happening. Right. So in that sense, it's really not prescient, but uh, right. It's, retrospective. I mean, you, you, were, you were commenting on an actual phenomenon and then just as, as if to like prove you even more correct, this the series of shootings in, in the Atlanta area happened the next day, which that, that's just sort of a, a, a distressingly sad uh, coincidence and prediction. In terms of the event itself, or, or I should say the events, because obviously there were multiple shootings. I'm not a non-Atlanta resident. I, I live, uh, you know, one state over. Um, but from our perspective, over here, it certainly seemed as though the authorities uh, who were 
investigating the, the shootings seemed hesitant to identify the shootings as hate crimes, despite the fact, as you say, that three quarters of the victims were AAPI women. Is that observation correct? And, and if it is, what effect did that have on, on the AAPI community in Atlanta and in particular your district? So, so given that this case is still working its way through the court system, particularly mm-hmm. in Fulton County. I don't want to comment too much on this okay. piece of it, but I do think that because, you know, obviously we should give the judicial system time and space to work correctly. But I will say two things related to this because you, you make a very good observation. So the first thing is that the population of Georgia, as of the most recent census numbers, Georgia is about 5% AAPI. Mm-hmm. However, of the eight victims of this horrific crime, 75% were AAPI, right? So that skew was notable to many people. It's, it's, it's difficult to avoid that observation. Right. The second thing is a more complicated thing to talk about, the social aspect, is that no one piece of anyone's identity exists um, alone. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the victims of this crime were Asian. The vast majority of victims were also women. Mm-hmm. And as Asian women, we don't get to pick one or the other part of our identity and check the other parts at the door. So the intersectionality of those identities and how those identities are perceived and metabolized by the people around us and are really intimately intertwined in a way that's difficult to tease apart, it's different from other intersectional inter, uh, identities that people uh, go around with, right? I think in many ways, and this gets to your point about um, calling it a hate crime or not, it's, in many ways, it's difficult to know the motivations behind a crime, right. this heinous, right? Even though the justice system seeks valiantly to piece that together as best it can from evidence, though we may never truly no, right? But I will tell you that many Asian people and many women and many Asian women are familiar with the ways that their identities, our identities, are perceived and lead to discrimination and lead to violence. Asian women are particularly familiar with the Western stereotypes of being um, fetishized, Mm -hmm. hypersexualized, seen as ornaments, uh, seen as meek or passive or submissive. This is something that we've unfortunately been made to see simply by living in the society. Uh, we're aware of this tendency in the States that they view us as objects rather than people. Right. And we can see again doing this math that this crime was disproportionately carried out against Asian run businesses and on Asian women. So sometimes these factors aren't causative, right? But they certainly contribute to an environment that makes it easier for such crimes to occur. Similar to the fact that lax firearm laws, for example, They don't cause gun violence, but they create an environment in which it's much easier for that kind of violence to manifest and happen very easily. So regardless of the charges and regardless of the outcome and the labels, uh, I'll say that as members of the AAPI community are aware of our uneasy place in American society at times, the gunman has attributed a hypersexualized punitive motivation to his crimes. This is from his own mouth. So I'll just leave it at that and we can interpret how that plays out. Gotcha. I, I mean, I, I think that that's a, a good way of, of talking about some very difficult and, as you say correctly, I, I believe, um, complex issues. Uh, understanding motivation is very challenging. I can say that as a mental health professional as well. And there's always a little bit of, I don't want to say guesswork, but certainly deduction or inference that, that has to go on to make those kinds of leaps. and, and uh, I agree with you that it's not always easy for law enforcement to try to do that, but you know I think you contextualize those issues 
really well um, for this situation. So these shootings happened last March. What kinds of changes or impacts have you noticed over the last several months with respect to conversations in the public sphere about AAPI hate or crimes against women? I think two things primarily. One is that though you hate for this to be the catalyst, this, this kind of tragedy, it really has shown a light on a phenomenon that has been largely invisible and overlooked. So I think uh, in this way, it has uh, given more focus to uh, a phenomenon that's been happening really all along, not just in the past few months, not just in the past year since COVID, but for decades, if not centuries in this country. The second thing is that it has helped bring members of the API community together to um, really across borders and barriers, because like many other communities, uh, Asian Americans are not, uh, they're not monolithic. And mm -hmm. uh, we come from many different backgrounds and countries and cultures and socioeconomic statuses. This has been a way for us to talk across those barriers and unite behind a common cause. We talked about conversations a little bit um, that have taken place since the crime on March 16th. And one of the biggest conversations I think that we've seen a real concrete effect actually took place the week of the tragedy at the end of the week. And that conversation was here in Atlanta and included uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris who came to Atlanta uh, to speak with local API leaders on the issue of this crime and specifically on issues of support and services for our communities, both locally and nationally. And as a result of these conversations and national conversations, it helped to encourage the administration to pass the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which we saw uh, earlier in the spring, which importantly makes the reporting of hate crimes more accessible at the local and state level by uh, boosting public outreach, ensuring reporting resources are available online in multiple languages, which is really important for the API community. Absolutely. Uh, these are issues that I know we specifically flagged with the president and VP at our meeting in Atlanta. And I know lots of people were gratified to see these measures uh, codified into law this past spring. Excellent. Excellent. So that, that sounds encouraging, particularly to have, you know, both the president and the vice president show up and, and listen uh, about that. Was that, was that a particularly well attended session with her, uh, was the community as well represented as you would have liked? This was a closed session uh, where uh, a certain number of API leaders in the community, including the API elected uh, legislators, were invited to a closed door meeting. And going into this, you know, I'm, I'm a new legislator, right? This is my first term. I really wasn't sure what to expect. And honestly, I wasn't sure if this was going to be just like for show or a photo op, you know, like you, you don't know exactly what you're walking exactly. into. And I was really gratified to see, first of all, it's, it's very unusual to have the president and the vice president both show up and give time for a community event like this. So that was, um, that was significant. And not just that, but they spent a significant amount of time with us in what was actually a very short visit to Atlanta. It was more than 90 minutes of this closed door session. There were no photographers, there were no press. It was very clear that it was not, it was not for show. Right. This was really a conversation that they wanted to hear what we had to say. They wanted to hear what our communities had to say. They wanted to hear the stories from our community so that they could help. I remember in particular, Vice President Harris was taking copious handwritten notes during this conversation. And this is, of course, especially significant because, as we know, Vice President Harris is the highest ranking 
AAPI women in the country. So um, it was very significant having her there and just having their time and attention. That's wonderful to hear. I'm, I'm glad to, to know that I mean, you hear about these sort of swoop in for a visit and it's a, it's a photo op, but it sounds like this, this um, conversation was, was much, much more than that. I'm curious if uh, one of the ways that we like to kind of end or or leave our conversations with our guests on the MVP is to talk about action, to talk about things that people can do or can can find in their communities that might be helpful. So I'm wondering if if you're aware of and if you're willing to share with us any resources that might be available for the AAPI community in Atlanta or uh, nationally, or or groups you'd recommend that Asian American Pacific Islander communities should consider familiarizing themselves with. Absolutely, and thank you for focusing on these community groups who really deserve uh, all the praise for doing the hard work they're doing. There are a lot of groups that stepped up for the community, not just in the wake of March 16th, but every day before and after that. So I want to make special mention of two. The first one is the Center for Pan-Asian Community Services, which is a nonprofit organization based in Gwinnett County out here uh, in Metro Atlanta that provides multilingual social and health services to the Asian immigrant community here in Georgia. So I encourage people to learn more about them and support this group uh, on cpacs.org, cpacs.org. The second group, which is uh, a national group, but they have a branch in in Atlanta, is Asian Americans Advancing Justice. People may have heard of this group. Their mission is advancing the civil and human rights of Asian Americans through advancement of um, education, litigation, and public policy advocacy. They do a wonderful work. Um, These are tireless public servants who who run these groups, and they are the face of uh, Asian American leadership here in Georgia. I'm so proud of the work they've done to help so many people. One last piece I will put in, in terms of action, is we talked about um, hate crimes and violence, but we really, especially in the South, we cannot leave out this aspect of gun safety as part of this conversation when we talk about mass violence. And there are two pieces of uh, gun safety legislation that uh, I hope to keep moving through the Georgia State Senate as this session reconvenes um, in January. One is on expanding background checks to cover all private gun sales, which is a very reasonable and very well accepted, very popular uh, gun safety measure that Mm -hmm. have been adopted in in other states and is trying to move through at the federal level. And the other one is instating a five-day mandatory waiting period for all new uh, firearm purchases. The reason this is significant and the reason that I and uh, my fellow API legislators dropped this bill soon after the events of March 16th is because this murderer from March 16th purchased his firearm that same morning mm. and by that evening had used it to kill eight people. Yeah. So a five-day waiting period could uh, defuse or dilute some of these uh, impulsive Right. I was gonna, I, that's the word I was going to say. I mean, there, that is sort of a, a great concern is that firearm purchases are made impulsively and then can in very short time lead, and I should say some firearm purchases are made impulsively and, and can in this very tragic instance, I mean, same day, be used to commit murder. I mean, that's that's a problem. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Has this event, these events, I mean, obviously it's affected Atlanta, it's affected your community. Has it changed 
what you're doing in office compared to what you thought you'd be doing in office? Has this event sort of altered your your uh, platform or your um, focus in any way in your political activities? Well, you know, as, as I noted, a lot of why I ran for office was to run on these sort of public health issues. And uh, I think that people often don't think about things like public safety and gun safety as public health issues because they're so often politicized, mm -hmm. uh, just like everything is these days, right? A lot of things that are actually purely scientific or public health issues have become politicized in a way that makes it difficult to, um, to do work. So if anything, I think it's clarified my commitment to present these answers to these problems as, as public health measures, because I think it allows us to uh, defang the politics of these issues. And I think this is a moment where we are paying attention to it. And there is um, energy, particularly in our community, to, to work on these issues. So if anything, I think it is, has focused, focused my, my attention on the same issues rather than and a derailing or changing direction. Gotcha. I mean, that makes perfect sense. You know, that that's a, a a very fine way of putting that. This this is very much in the realm of public health, and fits wonderfully within the, the kind of issues you were talking about as we began our conversation. Senator Al, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't tell you how much we appreciate your perspective, your dedication to your constituents, your dedication to marrying public health with politics in the interests of improving the lives of uh, your constituents and, and Georgians in general. And uh, we really thank you for, for talking with us today. It's absolutely been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. This has been uh, an episode of MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Michelle Au, State Senator from Georgia. Thanks for listening, everybody.